Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, before we get started, just a quick reminder that the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are free. Uh, I make everything available free of charge, nearly 500 episodes and counting, all of it completely free. There's an Other People app, that too is free, so everything's free. And what this means is I depend on the support of regular listeners to help keep the show rolling. If you listen regularly, if you get something from this program, if you enjoy it, and you would like to show your support, you can drop a couple of bucks in the hat at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod pod all right okay you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful dude what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there and now here's your host Brad Listy. Just one person. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome (laughs) to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. My guest today is Chiara Barzini. She has a new novel out from Doubleday. It is called Things That Happened Before the Earthquake. Chiara Barzini and I will be in conversation momentarily. I should say that Chiara and I were supposed to meet in person. We were supposed to do the interview in person earlier this summer, uh, but I had to leave town when my father-in-law fell ill and uh, sadly passed away. So we weren't able to connect uh, when she was here in the States on book tour, but we did uh, have a nice conversation over the transom. Chiara uh, lives in Rome, Italy. So we spoke, she was in Rome, I was in Los Angeles. At one point during the interview, if you listen for it, you can even hear the honking of a scooter in the background, which felt to me at the time uh, very Roman. So Chiara Barzini and I coming up in just a bit. Before we get started, I wanted to offer some congratulations to some of my past guests. I don't know if you guys saw this, but the uh, National Book Foundation released its long list of nominees for this year's uh, National Book Awards. And uh, especially in the fiction department, I had the pleasure of speaking with several of the nominees, and I want to tip my cap to these people. Uh, Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, who I had on the program just last week, was nominated for her debut, A Kind of Freedom. Congrats to Margaret. That's wonderful news. Min Jin Lee, whom, uh, with whom I had a delightful conversation earlier this year, was nominated for her novel, Pachinko. Uh, Charmaine Craig, not too long ago, had her sitting right here. Her novel, Miss Burma, was nominated. 
Uh, Daniel Alarcon was nominated for his story collection, The King is Always Above the People. He was on the program uh, a couple years ago. And uh, Jasmine Ward, who has won the National Book Award previously uh, and is a a fine writer, just uh, got nominated again for her new novel, Sing, Unburied, Sing. So there are others on the long list, uh, and I haven't gotten a chance to talk to everybody, but I did talk to a good percentage of them, and it's very exciting to see these people getting the recognition that they uh, so richly deserve. So kudos to all, and if you're listening and you haven't heard those conversations, you might want to dip into the archives and check it out. All of those episodes are free of charge. So uh, what else is going on? I'm trying to think. I saw Jean-Claude Van Damme this week. It's <laughs> about all I've got for you. You know, I had a week of work. I did my busy life. I did my routine. I feel like I'm very regimented, very boring, you know, to fit everything in that I want to fit in. I have this, you know, I, I talk about this all the time, but I just, I have to, I have to ritualize things. I have to schedule things. Sometimes wonder if that's a good idea. Sometimes wonder, uh, if that's a brilliant idea because it's the only way to get everything, you know, to tick every box but maybe I need to relax more. So anyway, I, uh, I was riding my bike home from work because I'm a bicycle rider in Los Angeles. One of the rare few who, uh, who does this. And I was uh, cruising around, I uh, came to a red light, pulled up to a stop at the corner and I looked to my left and there is a very familiar, strangely familiar looking gentleman at the wheel of a Bentley convertible. And, uh, he had like a knit cap on like a winter kind of cap on. So that sort of threw me for a moment, but as I processed his face, as the light turned green, he drove away and I pedaled away. It occurred to me that it was Jean-Claude Van Damme and we had made eye contact. So that happened. I, uh, I don't think I've ever seen a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. I've just been like aware of him. Maybe I did as a kid, you know, but it's never something that I was super into. I know there are people out there who really, uh, enjoy his work. That was my celebrity sighting this week. Jean-Claude Van Damme. This stuff happens. You know, you make the weird eye contact with a celebrity. I'm trying to think of anybody else in recent times. I think the, the guy that's going to play Han Solo, I saw him not too long ago. The, like young Han, you know. I don't even know his name, but I recognize his face. Saw him at a farmer's market, which is very L.A. Like I, uh, like I, uh, I try to do yoga like once a week, once or twice, if twice, if I'm lucky, but I try to do it once a week and I'll usually do it on the weekend. And, uh, then I'll go to, a. <laughs> I'll sometimes go get a juice after yoga and then go to a farmer's market. Which pains me to admit this, but as I'm doing it, I'm, I'm like self-aware. Like I feel like I call it in my head, the douchebag, like trifecta. Just yoga, juice, farmer's market. Just hating myself as I, as I go through the motions. But yet I can't resist. And really, there, you know, inherently, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Like, is there really anything wrong with juice? Is there really anything wrong with stretching out a little bit? Having some quiet time? Buying your produce direct from a uh, farmer? <laughs> And yet, I understand. I understand why these things are loathsome, particularly when packaged together in one revolting, what do you call it, 
package together in one revolting package. It's embarrassing. Making eye contact with Han Solo. <laughs> you like hold a zucchini in your hand. He's sorting through like citrus, like berries. Berries are expensive. Everything's expensive. All this produce. <laughs> what am I talking about? I say this every monologue. At some point in every monologue, I hit a moment where I'm just like, what am I talking about? Why am I doing this? I feel like the monologues are getting increasingly unwieldy. I recognize it. Jean-Claude Van Damme, not to the best of my knowledge, cast in the new uh, Star Wars picture, the new Han Solo movie. There's been no Jean-Claude Van Damme renaissance. Remember how they had like the Matthew McConaughey McConaissance? There has been, not been a uh, Van Damme ascense. Jean-Claude ascense. Though, you know, he looked like he was in pretty good shape. I think he's ready for it to happen. I think he's prepared for the moment, but it just hasn't happened yet. We haven't had our Jean-Claude Van Damme nostalgia trip yet as a culture. I feel like there was a, a Sylvester Stallone since a couple of years ago when uh, Creed came out, like he got nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> and I don't mean to bag on Sylvester Stallone. There's a actually a very compelling argument to be made that Stallone is one of the most uh, talented and productive uh, people working in cinema of the, you know, of modern times, the amount of screenplays he's written. He's actually a very accomplished screenwriter. A lot of his movies have, you know, he's written a lot of movies that you're not aware of. And I think that Rocky and Rocky two, especially are terrific films. I think Creed is a terrific film and a kind of a brilliant resuscitation of that franchise, which I thought had completely burned itself out. And I was wrong. I loved Creed and I was moved by Stallone's performance. I'm a Stallone fan. I feel like Stallone, you know, people bag on Stallone. He's an easy target just because of the, uh, you know, that slow delivery and the performance of, uh, that he sort of boxed into with Rocky. But, uh, yeah, the Stallone sense. I felt bad that he didn't win the Oscar. Yeah, I really thought he was going to, I think he thought he was going to win. Like he was like, holy shit, I might actually win this. It's got to suck to be on that awards train. I know it's great. You know, you're making tons of money and everyone, you know, you're getting all this attention, but come on. The work that you have to do, the humiliating work that you have to do to go grovel for an Oscar. I don't think people necessarily realize this. All the luncheons, the ass kissing. These these celebrities and their you know the studios they campaign for this stuff. There's a whole thing. Like I want to say like George Clooney, the year that he won was like out at like nursing homes where there's like lots of like old Academy voters who are like in their you know their twilight days. He's out there shaking hands, charming them. <laughs> uh, so I don't think the national. I guess my point is I don't think the National Book Award nominees have to do anything like this. It's a much smoother process. It's much less degrading. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Chiara Barzini is my guest. Her new novel is called Things That Happened Before the Earthquake. It was great talking with her, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chiara Barzini. There's a kind of self-repression that happens. So you're, you know, anyone who dares to dream in Rome is is sort of frowned upon and looked upon as a sort of... Uh, you know, m- m- egomaniacal uh, sort of narcissist. So what I, you know, it, it's very hard to break from that, I think, you know, to break from the idea that people are going to have a very strong opinion about you if you dare to talk about the fact that you have dreams or have ambition. Um it's hard to break from that, but I think the new generations are sort of getting over it a little bit. It feels that way, at least, I hope. Um, but, you know, that's also, you know, why uh, that why I, I kind of, why my whole family moved to the United States when we were 15. And it was definitely part of that. It was the beginning of the Berlusconi era. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, desire to sort of get out of the country and go have your dream else, go have your dreams elsewhere. Hmm. Okay. And, um, and, and I want to get to that. I want to get to age mm-hmm. 15 and moving to LA, but like, before we do, like, tell me about your family, like where you were raised. Like, I know you're raised in Rome, but like, what were you, you know, what did your parents do? Do you have siblings? Yes. Uh, I was raised in Rome. My dad is a filmmaker and my mom is now a food critic and food writer. Uh, I have a younger brother, uh, Theo, who's a filmmaker as well. And uh, we were sort of raised in a very uh, beautiful sort of farm just just outside of the, the Roman center. And we, so we had a very, uh, I will say, may, maybe something close to a hippie upbringing as kids uh, in the sense that we had a lot of nature and, and animals and no rules and a sort of very idealistic idea of what a family should be and both of my parents are quite sort of political and have their own opinions about how one should raise a family and they're they're a bit you know they like to break the law a little bit this sounds great (laughs) yeah it was very fun (laughs) so what do do you mean like do you mean when you talk about breaking the law do you mean like civil disobedience like political protest kind of stuff uh, yes, there was a lot of political protests, mo- mostly in the 70s before I was born. Um, 
So uh, my father was part of the sort of leftist uh, Autonomia Operaia, the autonomous movement uh, in in Rome. There were, you know, he explained to me when I was very young what a Molotov was. <laughs> And, um, you know, he was very proud of this. Uh, but the funny thing about this autonomous movement, which was sort of like a workers' rights movement that the um, workers' rights movement that was that was happening that had a big moment in the 60s and 70s and then kind of started to decline when the terrorist acts of these leftist uh, groups became more and more intense and then kind of culminated with the death of a famous politician called Aldo Moro. Um, it was that they were sort of weirdly founded by a kind of group of very bourgeois people. So I, you know, I, I've always been kind of cynical about it because I've been like, you know, you guys are bourgeois. What are you? What are you going around talking about? You know, workers' rights and the Communist Manifesto and so much theory, but. Where's the practice, you know? Right. Where's the truth? Right, right. Because <laughs> you're living in a in a penthouse or whatever, you know? But Exactly. It gets complicated, though, because it's like I'd rather have people, even if they are bourgeois, bourgeois be concerned with social justice than not be concerned at all. Absolutely, yeah. Of it, course. Yeah. So, well, it sounds like you had, a, a, like, a great childhood. I did have a great childhood. I, I, you know, I was very in love with my parents. They were very original and it wasn't always easy, but um, it was very fun and very daring. There were, there was also a lot of, a lot of daring moments that, that were very fun and adventurous for a kid. Like what? Um... Well, you know, my dad is the kind of person who would let you drive a car in, in on an empty road, you know, when you're a kid, or will let you smoke cigarettes if you want to, and and uh, jump off of really high rocks when you're very very young, uh, go onto ski slopes where you're not supposed to go on, and you know, get lost in the woods. There was a lot of getting lost and almost dying and getting back home after these long adventures and the the first friend sentence would always be you have no idea what happened and our mom would worry and we didn't have cell phones back then so there was always us getting home really late after these uh, sort of like afternoon excursions with our dad well he sounds he sounds like a character <laughs> he does <laughs> and and he's a filmmaker, so like, uh, forgive me for not being uh, up to speed on Italian cinema, but like, has he directed a lot of like, uh, like feature films in in Italy? He has. Um, he had a, a very important film that was uh, that came out in the early nineties. That was sort of an Italian big chill film. It was called Italia Germania Quattro Tre, which means Italy Germany Four to Three, which is like a sort of historical uh, uh, football, you know, soccer championship uh, match uh, from the World Championship of 1984. No, I'm getting it wrong. Anyway, um, he, you know, the, he. It's a, it's a film about a group of people that gathers after no, having known each other from their youth and they all gather to watch this uh, soccer match and they haven't seen each other in a while and a lot of stuff comes up when they all see each other again. Uh -huh. Okay. That sounds, yeah, that, that sounds very big chill. Yeah. It was very big chill and it was very successful and it was sort of, you know, the 
voice of a generation type of a type type film and then he's he's done other films since then um you know uh, also has worked a lot for television and so did you grow up going on set and stuff like that yeah i did and i was a terror he would always ask me to act in in the things that he did and i was a very terrible actress and i always forgot my lines my brother was very good though he was he was very natural okay so this is an interesting i was very this brings up an interesting question though because i i i get i mean uh, people are good at different things it seems like sort of an obvious point to make but like i think of like really creative people like bright intelligent creative people you're a gifted writer. You understand how to write characters. You can um, empathize with them and embody them. Uh, I think of, say, like a lot of uh, you know musicians will sometimes cross over into acting. You see a lot of that. You see a lot of actors try to cross over into music. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm always fascinated when somebody who is a very gifted artist tries to to work in a medium that's like you know outside of their area of expertise or whatever. And some of them can do it, you know, like uh, Tom Waits, for example, the musician, like Mm -hmm. he can be an effective actor and like I can believe him in a role and he sort of blends into the scenery and you don't really notice him. But then like I watch Madonna on screen and it's just like it doesn't work for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like I'm wondering if you (laughs) I'm, I'm always wondering, like, why? Like, you know, like what is it about acting that you have to have? Like maybe you have to be able to like completely forget yourself or something. Cause like, I don't think I would be a very, I'm too neurotic or something to be an actor. Like I feel like I would be thinking about it too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, You know, I don't know. I do think with acting, it's a, there a certain magic is involved, you know? And I do have, I do think it has to do with the ability of losing yourself a little bit and being uh being you know having that sort of natural ability to, to improvise and, and to not think of the camera as an intruder um you know to be not to be self-conscious in front of a camera i think takes a lot of character and a lot of instinct so i think you either have it or you don't uh with with the acting um and I think it's one of those things where you can never really tell, you know. You always think, oh, she's so beautiful. She'd be such a great actress. And then you get a model in front of a screen and it's a disaster. Or, you know, someone completely unexpected. I have a friend who um, who stutters very, uh, very badly. And uh, he's actually a photographer and a director. But we ended up asking him to play a role in a film that we wrote and uh, not only did he nail the role, he's sort of the most touching and heartbreaking character in the film. And when Variety wrote a review about the film, the you know the main thing that they mentioned was was this guy Corrado, and they said, "Oh, what a great discovery he was." Um, so I think you know I think you never know until you actually put him in front of a camera. You know who's gonna who has it, whatever it is, and who doesn't. Well, you know what? Now you're making me rethink this because I've never tried acting. I could be the ne- I could be the next Lawrence <laughs> I could be the next Lawrence Olivia. I have no idea. <laughs> That'd be great to find out. Uh yeah, I just I guess like I, if I'm if I'm trying to imagine myself in front of a camera, like I'm not even comfortable like when somebody takes a picture of me with their iPhone, you know, so I can't imagine like standing in front of a <laughs> can and, and and the thing too is that like when it comes to film acting, it's not just like one guy with a camera. There's like a whole crew standing there. You're you're lit. Like it's a big, 
you know, it, it, there's a big group of people sort of encircling you while you do this stuff. Yeah, it's very intimidating. So did you, growing up, did you have um, like cinematic ambitions like from the get-go? Like were you thinking I'm going to be a director too or I'm going to be a movie star? Like I can imagine like that would be a natural uh, thing to think if your dad is working in the movies and you're, you're sort of growing up around this stuff. Right. Well, um, I, it was definitely just daily bread in a sense. So um, I never consciously thought I'm going to be an actress or I'm going to be in movies or I'm going to be around the world of movies. But when the world of movies was around, it just felt like, oh, I can try that or I can try this or I can see how this works. Um, and I actually did do a little bit of acting when I was about 18. I was in a in a kind of cult indie movie called SLC Punk about the punk scene in, in Salt Lake City in the 80s. And it, that was very fun. Uh, and felt also very natural. And the director was a family friend who would hang out at the house all the time. And he said, you know what? I'm making a film about punks and you should be in it. Um, but, um, you know, I think that with time, you know, as always, you sort of start to understand that even though something is familiar, it doesn't necessarily mean that's what you should be doing. So I was um, I was a... Uh, attracted by that world but I knew that I didn't want to be in it in a way you know I didn't want to act and I've always loved writing so I always I quickly steered in that direction well and okay so I can and I can see it being of uh, like sort of two ways where you have uh parents who are artistic and so you might feel on the one hand like a certain pressure like how could I like do I want to do this do I want to do what my parents do or at least be in the same ballpark um, and, and feeling like, uh, I don't know, a sense of internal pressure or a, a measuring up, you know, but then on the other hand, I feel like if you are, uh, in a family where your parents are creative, it creates a kind of permission structure and a sense of possibility. Like, oh yeah, like this is something one can do. You can make your life in the arts. You can be a creative person yeah. past the age of, you know, 18 or whatever. And I think that, you know, I often talk to writers on this program who did not grow up in creative households and were sort of the outlier in their family. And they had to kind of learn that permission structure or create it for themselves. So, mm -hmm. like, what was it for you? Like, it sounds like your parents were pretty nurturing and probably encouraged your creative pursuits. Um, but did you ever did you ever also feel like a sense of, oh, boy, you know, like, my dad's good at this. And, like, do I even want to go there? Or do I want to try to, like, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, like, chart my own course and do something different? Mm -hmm. um, I, you're right about the giving myself permission part. That was has been very – it's been with my brother and I since day one, you know. And, and I think we've both tried very different times to go on very different paths that always had that sort of creative – um, attitude, you know, whether it was writing, whether it was uh, directing, whether it was writing for the stage or, you know, just writing weird sitcoms with our friends when we were kids. Um, so, uh, but, but, you know, for me, it was really, I, I, it's not that I decided I wanted to be a screenwriter. I think at some point I actually decided I wanted to be a writer. And then when I decided that, the screenwriting thing kind of happened through another channel. So at that point, I was very happy and willing to give myself permission to sort of go down both routes uh, 
in a parallel way. Um, so I, I never had that moment of like, oh boy, you know, I'm 18 or I'm 20 and I can see clearly that what I really want to do is be a director just like my dad, you know, and I thankfully didn't have to go through that, uh, which I think actually would have been tougher and, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's very weird what happens in these creative families. There is definitely a permission and there's an atmosphere of, yay, you know, tell your own story and everyone has their own and we have all, to, we all have to express ourselves. But then when you actually do it, it's a whole different ball game. And I think it's much easier to be critical of the work of your relatives and to, you know, sort of have to say your, your opinion about it and have to have you put your distance between your own work and your relatives work. So it's a, it's a delicate space. I think, you know, the creative family in the whole, in the same sort of realm, creative realm business. Uh, but it can be done. And I think I was cautious in trying to sort of uh, get arrived to it, taking side streets rather than the main road. So is there a sense of competition? Do you feel anything like that where it's like I'm, you know, trying to outdo my dad or would he be feel threatened if like you won an Oscar? You know what I'm saying? Or like, like, you know, does that have, does that, <laughs> that, like, are you and your brother like secretly competing with each other? Like, or is it more of a supportive thing? Um, I, my brother and I are not competing at all. In fact, we really love collaborating and uh, we have a very similar uh, we're very compatible and we're sort of complementary in a sense. Uh, my mother is a uh, right, you know, she's a food writer, so she's sort of writing, and she writes more nonfiction. So, you know, saved myself there. With my dad, it's a little bit more complicated. I I don't think that there is competition, but I do uh, recognize that sometimes we haven't sort of seen eye to eye on on work related things we also tried to work together a couple of times like oh wouldn't it be great you know if you know i directed this and you wrote it and um and i think we've tried a few times a few times it's worked but the final time i think we're both sort of like all right you know i think we need to take a break from thinking that this is actually a good idea (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's like because that's i mean that's a that's a intimate problem making art with somebody is just an intimate period but then like filmmaking that's a whole process i mean i i was a film student in undergrad and sort of have a sense of what goes into making a movie like broadly and uh you know as a person who gravitated more towards writing you know that the collaborative nature of it and the amount of cooks in the kitchen and all the moving parts, like I found that kind of overwhelming. And I can only imagine like that that doubles when you're doing it with your parent. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, I think with a parent, there's also that weird on, you know, in the back of your head, there's always, and I think especially father, daughter, you know, the idea that you want to be um, congratulated for your work and you want to be seen and you want to be admired and you want to uh, make sure that you're making your dad happy, uh, which is a huge component. And, you know, that's not necessarily what works in a, in a creative team. You know, it's not that you're trying to make the director happy is that you need to try and make the best film possible. You know, so I think it, it gets too psychological, the kind of um, 
the kind of reasoning that starts to go behind what you're working on. And soon enough, it's about something completely different than the actual film. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, and I, I, I don't know, I guess like I'm trying to imagine like this is so far removed from my own family experience. So I'm trying to imagine as you're talking, like making a movie with my parents, <laughs> neither of whom are in the, <laughs> are involved in the arts and like, I, I don't know. I, 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 I applaud anyone who could get through that process. It just, it just seems like inherently full of like uh, tripwires, you know, and like pitfalls. But I yes. guess I guess people do it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, OK. So and at what age you talked about, like making a dis like a conscious decision to pursue writing. Uh, what age was that? Like, were you an adult when that happened or was this what, during your childhood? Um. I was um I was about 15 when I real when I had moved to to the United States and um and I was 16 when I wrote my first short story and I decided to try to take a sort of creative writing class they were they were offering in school and um and I really loved the I got a very big rush from it and I was very excited about it and I was very excited about reading and you know I'd grown up with books my grandfather actually was a was a very big writer in Italy and he he was writing in the English language and he wrote a big uh, bestseller called The Italians which is sort of a it's a go-to book for anyone who wants to understand Italian character and Italian flaws and Italian shortcomings uh, it's a sort of cultural bible of Italy so I was always very drawn to his world and to his uh, having his foot in two worlds, the, the Italian world and the American world and being able to explain America to Italy and vice versa. So it was, you know, that was always there sort of in the back of my head. And then I think when I wrote my first short story, I just felt very excited about it. And then, you know, then school took over and other things took over. And then, you know, there was... There was college and there was a lot of overlap with theater and maybe acting or maybe directing, maybe, you know, wanting to do something in that realm, but not being sure. But that whole, that, that initial first story had really stayed with me. And I, and I just kept kind of doing that on the side and writing short stories and starting a hundred books that I never finished you know, the classic thing that you do as a teenager, I'm going to start a book, you know, and it's like two days later, oh, never mind. <laughs> um, but then, you know, when I was in college, uh, I think that's when it really shifted. My, my family at that point had moved back to Italy and I was really alone in the United States and had been for quite some time. And I started writing st stories again and I submitted them to, you know, the creative writing program at the school I was going to at, at UC Santa Cruz. And, um, and then I got in, you know, you know, that feeling of like, oh, you run, run into, you run and see to see who, what names made it on the list. And, uh, and mine was there. And it was so exciting. It was like the first time that I, I had gotten into something because of my writing, I'd gotten into the creative writing class. So um, I think that's when I started to take it very seriously, when someone kind of allowed me to do it formally. Mm, and gave you that like affirmation. Yeah, for sure. So let's go back to age 15, because this interests me on a lot of levels, like this decision to pack up the family and move abroad, like right in the middle of your like high school years. 
um, go to an entirely uh, different country. Your father, I imagine, was going to try to do some film work in L.A. Is that correct? That's right. And yes. and then also, and, and this speaks, I think, to the political moment that we're in in the United States, because I see a lot of parallels between Trump and Berlusconi. Uh, I hope that... that oh, absolutely. They, they seem to me to be kind of of a piece. They even have like the same skin tone somehow or something. Like There's like, there's something going on with like uh, the aesthetic, you know, but just like, you know, as somebody who kind of lived through that as an Italian... Um, like, is there any, is there any wisdom you can offer Americans who are distressed by the man in the Oval Office right now? Uh, absolutely. Well, you know, a very funny thing exactly on this subject matter is that when I was in, I was just in LA and, uh, and, uh, Jonathan Ames, who's a friend and, and great writer who presented my book in LA at Book Soup, we're just sort of going over it and having a little chat about it. And he was like, do you realize that there's a part in the book where you talk about Berlusconi and, and it actually really sounds like you're talking exactly about Trump. And then he had me read it out loud. And it was so funny because it was just it, it, a of even a physical description, you right. know, the tan and the white and the white teeth and this hair that kind of looks like a fluorescent wig. And um, <laughs> and, you know, coming from basically being a business person and uh, and and asking, you know, I mean, Berlusconi, his his political party was called Forza Italia, and it was sort of the premise was sort of make Italy great again, you know. So it's, so, a, it's the same play. Um, it's, it's the same playbook. Oh, it's exactly the same playbook, you know. And I think actually that's why Italians are so cynical about Americans being distressed by Trump. Is just we feel like. Oh my God, you guys. Okay. At, at worst, you're going to have this guy for eight years. We had him for over 20 years, you know, so we couldn't get rid of him. You know, he'd c come out from one side and come back at it from another. Uh, we couldn't even get him to go to jail when we found out that he was basically, you know, holding a prostitution ring with underage girls. Uh, so obviously Italy is, is in no way as powerful a country as the United States are. And, what is at risk with Trump being in even, you know, eight years of Trump could basically end the world, yeah. uh, which seems like we're, we're on, on a very good track so far and it hasn't even been a year yet. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, and, and by the way, I would, I would say too, like, you know, we say that eight years is the maximum, but who knows? Because I feel like people, uh, with his particular, uh, diagnosis, <laughs> like whatever you want to call it, you know, whatever it is that ails Donald Trump, uh, people like him don't usually give up power very easily, or if they do, they want to pass it to their offspring. So it's like, I'm not entirely sure he's not going to try to extend this thing. Like I wouldn't put anything past him is basically my point, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, you're right. Who knows? Maybe he'll change the law in that regard too, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's complete. He's completely off. No more eight year, you know, no more eight year. Yeah. Or he'll just be like Ivanka's going to run and you know the, he's just he's a yeah. he's a special kind of uh crazy and I think that um you know it'd be interesting to kind of talk about like what is it? I mean aside from like the just the the pure aesthetics of the two men, but like what would you like what is the the common thread between Berlusconi and Trump? Like what um 
I, I say diagnosis. Like, what is it that is ailing both men? It seems like they kind of suffer from the same thing. Is it like, I guess it's narcissism. It's, uh, do you know what it's I'm, narcissism. that's what it is. It's like pathological yeah, um, narcissism or, or, um, sociopath, you know, sociopathic behavior. Yeah. yeah. There's, 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 there's definitely sociopathic behavior. I think it's people who have had the rush very early on in life or at some point in their life, they had the rush of taking a very big risk, uh, and seeing them and seeing themselves succeed at something, you know, and kind of having that thrill of obtaining that kind of power and and i think that they basically get addicted to that form of power and that form of uh having that that much influence on on other people uh can sort of be a huge turn on you know and and then i think that they sort of went ahead and really refined that you know how do i get more powerful how do i make that thing happen again you know how can I dream even bigger and try to make it happen? Um, and in that sense, you know, they've been very powerful people because they've really managed to achieve what no one could have ever thought they could achieve, you know? Um, so I think it's just a matter of, I mean, not just a matter, but I think it, you know, I think ego and and being hungry for power and, um and taking risks and kind of gambling and seeing how far they can get away with things. I, I don't think Trump really thought that he could become president. I, I think he was just as excited and surprised and and power tripping on that than the rest of us yeah. were sort of horrified by. And um, so I, you know, I think it is a character flaw. I think it's the it's the character Probably it's the character trait of of dictators. I think you know. I think Mussolini is the same way. I think Hitler is the same way. Um, and and uh, you don't question yourself. You just keep going. You don't apologize. You know. You don't ever admit to having lied or or anything like that. You just have to sort of keep going and hold your chin up and keep your shoulders wide and. And uh, smile to uh, whatever life brings to you and decide very early on that you're going to be a winner no matter what. Yeah. I mean, and I'm always like, I'm, and I'm always wondering like what actually happened to Donald Trump as a boy? Like, did he come out of the, did he come out of the box like this? Is it just his wiring or did, was he abused as a kid? Like, how do you become so uh, utterly insensitive to the emotions and feelings of other people? And, you know, do you know, like it, I guess like I've heard, I've had people say like I don't care you know I don't care what happened to him as a kid like fuck him yeah. <laughs> but like as a just as a writer and as a person who's interested in people like I genuinely want to know like what the fuck created this like why is he like this like how can anybody be like this and I, I always want to believe that there was some sort of damage done to him early on that sort of imprinted itself upon him and and you know led to you know a series of behaviors over his lifetime but. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm giving him too much credit or something, or uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'd love to see Donald Trump in in um, kindergarten and see where it where it all started. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> As a crying baby. <laughs> maybe you can write that screenplay. Was, yeah, exactly. Uh, but I I think I'm going to go with the whole I don't care movement in that regard, meaning. No, no matter what happens to you as a child, I don't know if anything justifies behaving like this. 
So how much in like, cause this is another thing, like America has a tendency to look inward, you know, like we don't tend to look outward at the world as much as we should. And, uh, I, I guess like a question, a question that I would have is like how much like in your day-to-day life in Italy, like how much are Italians thinking about him and talking about American politics? Like, is this something that you hear about pretty regularly? Because you know, like, like you said earlier, like, you know, the consequences of Trump's actions have impact on the whole entire world in, uh, you know, potentially a very grave way. But I guess I'm curious mm-hmm. to know, like, how much how much resonance does this have on a day to day basis with people in, say, Italy? Uh, I think it has resonance. Uh, I think we're more detached and we're not as emotionally involved and we are we roll our eyes and we get scared and uh i think a lot of us think he's not really going to do that right um and try to stay on the i i think we're sort of we we allow ourselves to be um since we have some distance from it we kind of keep hoping that maybe it isn't true or maybe it's not affecting us or maybe you know it's sort of one of those like horrible things that's happening and we try to tell ourselves it's happening very far, far away so we don't have to worry about it. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the horrors you see from the war where you just sort of try to be like, oh, my God, you know, I, I'm going to try to not think about this. Uh, so on the one hand, there's that. There's a sort of like trying to close an eye on things. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, you know, we, we are we are sort of terrified and it is in the news every day. Um, but I think what is happening in America is that Trump has really gotten into people's subconscious. He's gotten under people's skin. You know, he's really getting in there. And that whole feeling of ickiness of something's wrong or, you know, Someone was telling me, you know, my sex life has changed since Trump has been elected. You know, the whole sort of like the way that he's affected your life in every single corner of your life. That hasn't happened yet. And um, we'll just give it time. And I think we'll give it time. Yeah. And, you know, it was very funny because I when I was in the the last night I was in, in the United States before coming back to Rome, I actually finally had a Trump dream. And that's what I knew. Okay, I've been here too long. Now yeah. I'm finally having dreams about Trump. That's how it um, starts. That's how it starts. Just so you know, that's the beginning. That's of- how it starts. <laughs> exactly. That's how it, I knew it was a sign of alarm. <laughs> so let's get back to because we, you know, we we were at age 15 and coming to the states, and then we got into like the Berlusconi Trump rabbit hole. But I am curious to go back to that time in your life. And to uh, hear about like what it was like to be, you know, an adolescent and to suddenly go from living in Rome on this like idyllic farm outside of town to being uh, in Los Angeles. And and what part of town were you in in Los Angeles? Uh, So um, not far from, you know, the novel that I wrote, we actually did move, except not in 1992, which is when the novel takes place but in in 1994 after the earthquake so our our real family story is actually things that happened after the earthquake uh we moved to van nuys which was actually though just as horrifying in 1994 as it was in 1992 um and so we did have an idea of what living in la would be like and our expectations about what our life would be like were very much disappointed 
Um, I did I did think there would be a center in L.A. for some reason. I thought it was a, a normal city with a center where people walked and suddenly I was in Van Nuys and it was in the middle of nowhere and it was the most dreary, depressing place I had ever seen and I was very upset and I I remember waking up one morning and leaving the house and deciding I was going to walk downtown to see what was happening downtown and I walked (laughs) up to Sepulveda (laughs) and asked someone, excuse me, how do I get downtown? And she looked at me, she's like, you're walking? Go back home. <laughs> you mean it. you mean like downtown LA or downtown Van Nuys? Uh, down downtown LA because I thought you know actually LA would have a, an actual downtown. You know I thought that it was like a normal city where you have you know I guess I, I realized okay we're obviously living in the outskirts of the center of the city but there must be a center. You know <laughs> yeah. European cities are very much built around that idea. So I was like well okay fine there's no squares there's no you know scooters people aren't walking but there must be a center at least um so there is no center that's a bit yeah. quickly found out that's a, yeah that's an adjustment <laughs> I, f- I feel like like this is one of the, i mean this is such a common thing to talk about when you talk about los angeles but it, it does bear repeating like because it's like it's a beautiful piece of real estate like the weather and the mountains and the ocean like it's a great place to build a city as long as you can get some water, you know, like there are some certain, you know, there are certain challenges, uh, infrastructurally, but we've overcome those, but it could, it could be designed so much better. You know what I'm saying? Like if we could just have a do over and, and really put some thought into planning this thing, it could be so much better. <laughs> I agree, but I, I do see a lot of, um, improvements since the 90s actually you know their public transportation is not just for homeless people it's now actually you know functioning a little bit more and neighborhoods are connected amongst each other's and um i i see a little bit i see a bit of an improvement i hope so i mean it's got to i mean there's only so many cars (laughs) there's only so many cars you can have on the road and like you know, I, I say that as somebody who's lived here for almost 20 years, and I do have a lot of love for my, my hometown. This is the place I've lived longest of anywhere that I've ever lived. And so, um, you know, for all of my, I, like, I criticize it from a place of love, you know, and uh, I'm wondering, <laughs> like, did you, did you come around? Like, did you adjust and, like, wind up finding the place charming? Or was it just kind of this, like, dispiriting, uh, disillusioning situation where the... The place was um, the place was kind of demystified because I think that happens too. You grow up with Hollywood movies, and you know Los Angeles sort of presents itself outwardly uh, in the culture as a court, uh, as a sort of Shangri La. But of course, like when you're on the ground here, that that goes away pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I I hated it all, all the way through when I was living there. <laughs> I mean, with a passion, <laughs> but. <laughs> There was no, there, no, no way around it. I couldn't wait to get out of there. I was ready to go anywhere. I applied to every single college I could think of, anywhere but LA. Um, but the very strange thing that happened was that just a few years after moving out of LA, this thing started to happen where I started to miss it. And I was missing things like strip malls and parking lots <laughs> and intersections and smells, certain kind of smells eucalyptus smell and all of a sudden all of those things would rush back to me and I realized that they meant home to me so I wasn't aware of it at the time but um, I had actually grown attached to the city and 
And that attachment turned into affection and then that turned into maybe even obsession. And I sort of, you know, I then I moved to New York after that and, and I had this thing of like, does California really exist? Did those years in California really exist? And I became sort of obsessed with revisiting places and reading about these places and started sort of obsessively reading, you know, California literature and uh, and kind of really finally immersing myself in what I couldn't see while I was, I was when I was living there, I couldn't see it. You know, I, I definitely needed some distance, uh, but, but the distance was, was very helpful and it kind of create, it helped me create a character out of the city. And, um, and I finally was able to meet the city in a place that felt, felt like a peaceful place and not like a war zone and uh and then uh, you know now it's i still have a very love-hate relationship but it's really i really do love it in some in some way and and um and i wanted the book to sort of be an, an ode to the city and not just you know a sort of dirty memory of it <laughs> <laughs> well it's but i mean and it's also i mean like to go back to something i said earlier i mean to move country like moving alone, like even if you were to have moved within Italy or even within Rome, like that, that alone can be traumatic for a teenager. Um, but those years are so emotionally charged anyway, to move halfway around the world to a city as like, you know, difficult as Los Angeles. And I say difficult, like difficult to, mm -hmm. to kind of comprehend, difficult to sort of integrate into, like, it's not an easy place to come to as a visitor or to come to as a, as a new person, you know, like it's, I don't know. Like you said, there's mm -hmm. no, there's no center. It's easy to get lost in it. It's easy to feel adrift. Uh, but yeah. I, that's just such a, it just strikes me as such a powerful combination of experiences. It makes sense to me that you would be writing about it all these years later and that you would have this kind of sense of dislocation and this sense of like, did it, did it really happen? Like, you know, like, uh, I don't mm -hmm. know that all, that yeah. all <laughs> there, there's like, there's a, a very strong logic to all of that to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think also the reason why, you know, those are very easy years to sort of have a hazy memory of is because it was really the most sort of eruptive time that I think, think the city ever went through. Uh, I always think of those years as the sort of teenage years of the city because it was like, you know, it was earthquakes, it was riots, it was fires, you know, wildfires, um, it was, you know, the O.J. Simpson trial, you know, that's sort of like the most formative time, I think, for the city. Um, sort of a, you know, a rite of passage or, you know, the city's own kind of coming of age years. So they were very chaotic and there was a lot of sort of smoggy, nebulous, you know, you couldn't really grasp what was actually happening. It just felt like everyone was scared, like everyone was violent and that the you know, the earth was shaking basically. So, um, uh, you're making, you're, you're making me, you're easy ma to sort of, I was going to say, you're making me feel glad to, to live here <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> as, uh, as Burbank, Burbank has been on fire like over the past couple of weeks. And like, you know, with, uh, with these hurricanes that have been hitting the United States, like I freaked out last week and bought, uh, like, like a, yeah. a, a earthquake kit. Like I just went online and I was like, I got to get prepared. Like I got to get some water and some knives and, you know, be ready to be ready to go. You know? Flashlights. Yeah. You know, like no, all... for sure. You know, there's a weird circularity between the early nineties and today, you know, it's very strange, uh, kind of freaky. 
Oh man. Well, and so you leave. Uh, you you want to get out. You're an adolescent. You've you know you're you're in Van Nuys, mm-hmm. and you're just like take me anywhere. And you wind up going to UC Santa Cruz, which is a lovely part of the country. Like mm-hmm. Santa Santa Cruz was that better? You had a good. Mm-hmm. It's, it sounds like you enjoyed that more. Uh, I did. You know, I think my originally I wanted to go to New York at all costs because it was like I want to go back to somewhere that feels like Europe. Um, and then when I got into the schools in New York, my dad was like, great, who's going to pay for them? Um, and of course, I think, you know, we're Italian, so it's not easy to get any kind of loan situation. Um, so, you know, decided on compromising and, and staying in California. But it was actually the wisest choice, I think. Uh, I loved um, I loved living in Santa Cruz. I loved having these four years of living in the woods <laughs> in this very strange town uh, with deer coming up to your bedroom window and knocking on your window and kind of people running naked on mushrooms in the middle of the campus at night and these big moons and the ocean. It just felt like here, you know, here we are. You have four years to really experiment and 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 figure out what you love and and here you go you know i was i was handed this experience which for an italian person is a is a real miracle because university here is nothing like that the whole idea of campus barely exists uh you rarely move away from your parents' house when you're going to college in fact you're usually basically squatting their house and trying to have your own sort of grown-up experiences on the side while your mom is in the other room cooking spaghetti. Uh, So um, it felt like, you know, such a gift to be able to have that much freedom in such a a wonderful and and, and, uh, and sort of place that was where you'd kind of break all the rules and where they had classes like History of the Grateful Dead and where you had teachers like Angela Davis talking about the prison industrial complex. You know, it was very, uh, it was kind of surreal, you know, to have all of that in one campus. Did you so take, it was very exciting for did, me and I had some great... Did you take, did you take the uh, History of the Grateful Dead class? I didn't, but I went to check it out one day because I because I didn't think it actually existed, and it did exist. <laughs> I'm a huge Deadhead. I love that. I love that band. Um, <laughs> I love the Grateful Dead too. Oh, you do? Okay, good. So I do. I do. Um, so Santa Cruz then leads you to uh, New York City. Is that you finally got to New York after you got out of there? Yeah, I had one year back in Rome, the very much the, the famous graduate year. You know, I think if there were to be a Italian version of the graduate movie, it might be my one year back in Rome. Um, but it was a good year because I got, you know, kind of got some writing done. And um, it was supposed to be um, sort of, I was supposed to move to New York right after. But then I think it was just then that 9-11 happened and um and i saw i thought to myself all right maybe i don't want to move to new york right away i think i'm going to give it some time (laughs) i was actually really supposed to go in september and then you know and then i was so completely shocked and and horrified by everything that i i gave myself a few more months so it wasn't a whole year it was maybe like a school year um, and then I moved. 
and, and okay, New York. So you get to New York in like what uh, 2002, and what what was your? No, it's 2001. It's still 2001. It's like the summer of 2001, I think, right? Or no, 2002, I guess. Oh, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, it would be. It would mean if it was right. a school year, then and like because it was 9/11, 2001, and then over yeah. the fall, winter, and then like 2002. Right. So you get there in the aftermath, um, but you know you've given it a little bit of time. Like, what was your impression of New York? Was that more of a fit? Yeah, I loved New York from the very beginning. I loved it from when I was a kid, and I always thought, I'm, I'm going to come back, I'm going to come back. And then I did, and I loved it so much. I loved it so much, I was ready to do anything there. You know, I worked as a waitress. Uh, I was a terrible waitress. The the people at the restaurant said, Kiara puts the weight in waitress, <laughs> or... Uh, <laughs> Or she couldn't care less about waitressing. There were all these sort of inside jokes at the restaurant. Um, but it was very much a learning experience. And it's, you know, it's, I think, you know, that kind of um, lifestyle where you're eating canned beans and, you know, trying to sort of uh, survive and, you know, wear the same outfit every single day and try to make rent at the end of the month. Um, that sort of falling in love with the city thing is um, something you can handle when you're in your early 20s, probably not when you're a little bit older. So how long were you there for? I was there until 2007. Okay. So a good amount of time. Like you did your time, you, you had your 20s in New York. I did. And why did I you sure leave? Did. Why did you leave? Um, well, I wasn't planning on leaving, but when I arrived... In Rome, I was waiting for um, for my uh, visa to renew or something like that. And while I was waiting for that, uh, the person that I am now, uh, that is now the father of my children, offered me to write a film with him. He'd been offered to write a movie, and it was a very cheesy romantic comedy called Sorry But I Love You um, that was taken from the sort of big bestseller book out here. And uh, when he asked me to write the film, I said, well, sure, okay. And I procrastinated going back to New York. And then when we actually started writing the film, and the film was done very quickly, and it was a very big box office hit, um, and immediately that spiraled into, well, you guys are a great romantic comedy couple. Why don't you write some more? And, you know, I, I had this whole sort of, well, I need to go back to my life of poverty and teaching, you know, literature in Harlem at the City College. I can't stay here and be a screenwriter. Uh, but then after a couple of months, I realized, you know what, um, this is actually not a bad idea to be starting to actually write films. And and then Luca and I fell in love writing that cheesy romantic comedy. So it's even cheesier in the end of the day. I mean, yeah, I was like, I feel like, I feel, I feel like that could lead to some sort of meta uh, screenplay about two screenwriters yeah. who write a romantic comedy and fall in love while writing a romantic comedy. I know it's very, it's very perfect for a romantic comedy. Um, yeah, and that's sort of what happened. You know, we kept, we started writing together. We became a writing duo, and we became a couple. And and Luca is very Roman, very Italian. And there was no way that I could drag him to move back to the United States with me. I've tried in very many different times, but I have not succeeded. 
Um, so we'll see. <laughs> so so since <laughs> since then, it's always been about having like a foot in two places and trying to get my whole family to uh, uh, accept my sort of accept the cause. Well, and just you know, wait till your kids. Wait till your kids are like fifteen, and then you can you know move to Sherman Oaks or you know some place out there in the valley, and <laughs> they can they can exactly they can have they can have their uh, powerful experience of dislocation in the uh, in in like the either the waning days of the Trump administration or in its messy aftermath. <laughs> That's the plan. Yeah, sounds... That's absolutely the plan. So and... well, it was very funny because when we were there this summer. Um, there were, you know, there was a lot of, you know, talk, you know, I spent a lot of time in LA and so I could hear myself asking my kids very similar questions to the ones that my parents had asked me when they were trying to get me to move to LA. It was like, isn't it great here? It's always sunny. Isn't it just amazing here? Wouldn't you like to live here? And I could hear myself really getting close to that pattern of just <laughs> trying to get them on board on something. And uh, thank God I left, or, you know, I left just in time. Yeah, I mean, and I find myself, my wife and I will do that no matter where we travel, where I feel like the first like 24 to 48 hours on the ground, we're, we're spent, like we always spend them thinking like, we could live here, like we, we could do this, this place is great, you know? <laughs> Did, I remember doing that in like Amsterdam, like for like the first two days I was convinced like we're going to live here. Like this is it. This is our future. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I love that. I love when you go to a city and you feel that the city is calling you in. It's very romantic. Yeah. And uh, like, are, do you find yourself as a parent, like having been raised, especially by a father who encouraged um, yeah, like uh, exploration and like didn't, you know, wasn't like overprotective, let's put it that way. And was like, you know, risk taking and getting lost and sort of giving you that freedom. Uh, are you that way with your kids? Like, are you like, come on, kids, like hop on the scooter, let's go. Or like, you know, like let's walk into the woods and. Yeah, with a little more caution, I think. Uh, I will have them use helmets. Um, I will, you know, I think I'm, a, I'm like the sort of. I, there's a little more wisdom to my to my approach, but I do. But people often tell me like, "Oh, I really love how free you are with your kids," and yeah. I think when they say free, they're actually they're, they mean something else. But we'll see. I mean, but I think I'm a little a, a little bit less adventurous than my dad was. They have to also they, probably they, as a reaction. They can't uh, they can't smoke Marlboro Reds. They have to smoke Marlboro Lights. I mean, like we we have to moderate Light. this stuff. <laughs> And not until they're twelve. Yes, Marlboro Light, and not until they're twelve, and preferably with you know those like smoking machines, whatever they're called, the ones that everyone is using for smoking pot now. Oh, the vape, the vaporizers. The vape. Yes, yeah. that seems like a lot of work. Like, and now they have like they have actual like vaping like stations or like vape bars where you can like vape with other vapors. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm getting old or something. Like, is this really a thing? I, I drive by these places sometimes, and I just. Uh, I feel like I just have absolutely no frame of reference. I know. I feel you on that. Uh, so you've published this book. Uh, you're writing screenplays. You're living in Rome. Like I think a lot of people listening are going to say that you've got it figured out. That sounds very good right about now to me. It's false. It's all fake. I haven't figured out anything. I'm constantly in a state of crisis. <laughs> um, that makes me feel better. But, yeah. No, don't worry. Um <laughs> 
No, you know, it, it, there's a lot of great things about it, but you're always doubting your choices as a parent, as a partner, as a creative person. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's, it's, it's definitely, if I were to look at it objectively, it, is, it should be a very happy time. So I am very thankful for it. And it's a very exciting and, and full time of my life. But, you know, that doesn't mean that there isn't a whole mountain of neuroses waiting right around the corner. That mountain of neuroses. It plagues, <laughs> it plagues us all. It uh, sure does. So let me ask you this. Like, you're raised in, in Rome. Are you, were you raised with any kind of religion? Like, uh, there's obviously, a, a, you know, a lot of Catholicism in Italy. But I'm curious to know, like, it sounds like you were probably raised outside of that tradition because your parents were sort of unconventional. Or, or am I wrong? Um, I was raised outside of that tradition. Uh, there's a very funny story about how I got baptized, which is that when I was seven, my dad asked me, do you want to get baptized? We didn't do it when you were born, but do you want to do it now? And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, basically it means that if you don't get baptized, you go to hell no matter what. <laughs> and if you do get baptized, you can probably, you'll probably end up in like purgatory for like a, a whole bunch of years. <laughs> And that's really what he said because he had a sort of religious upbringing and his mom had sort of given him the whole hell or paradise sort of dogmas. And um, and so I said, of course, I'm going to get baptized. Where do I sign? And um, and so I got baptized when I was seven. And, um, and the nun that was giving me, you know, because when you're not, when you don't do it right, when you're born, the the priests or whatever, you know, your, your, the parochial people ask you to, um, to sort of do some re studying Bible study stuff. And so I remember the first day of Bible study, the nun asks me, so what is your first memory? What's the first thing you can remember? And I said, the first thing I can remember is my parents' wedding and me standing right in the middle of them, not wanting them to get married and being very jealous and playing around and not wanting to, them to get married. And she gave me this horrified look. And I got back in the car when my mom picked me up and she said, what did you do today in Bible studies? And I, I was like, oh, you know, I told them about how my first memory was of you guys getting married. And she she seemed very upset about that. And she said, yeah, I can't believe you told the nun <laughs> that you came to our wedding. Are you crazy? <laughs> I don't know why. What's wrong with that? <laughs> So, yes, that, you know, so that's very much my parents, you know, they, they get me baptized. They don't, I, they do bring me to their wedding. Uh, they don't tell me that having a child out of wedlock is supposed to be some crazy sin. Um, so it's a lot, there's a lot of confusion. Let's just put it that way. And so where, but where are you today? Like, do you have any kind of like spiritual thing going on? I do have a spiritual thing. Obviously, having lived many years in California, I have developed a great love for meditation, and I practice transcendental meditation. And I also have a very strong connection to uh, the Madonna, whom I love very much. Uh, but I don't have a good relationship with priests or, mm, you know, people who work around the church. Yeah. I. I for to think, you know, I like the sort of direct line to the Holy Mary. Okay, so and you say uh, transcendental meditation. So did you do the you you paid the money and did the the class and got the mantra? I paid the money. I did. I paid the money. Was it worth what it? What can I say? 
I think it was worth it. You know, I, I don't agree with the fact that, you know, one should pay money to learn a technique that is so easy. But I think the fact that you pay money for it and that there's, you get such a sense of what it means to do it in a disciplined way is actually what instills the idea in you that you're actually, that you need to take it very seriously. So, you know, this was 10 years ago that I started and I still practice almost every day. You do except for like when two, my kids go crazy. Yeah. Like, like two 20 minute sessions. No, no. The two 20 minute sessions is pre babies. I'll do one 20 minute session. Yeah. That's where, that's where I'm at. The, the, the afternoon or the evening sessions hard. Yeah. It's very hard. That's what, that one gets away from me. But I mean, I feel like if you, if you can start in the morning somehow doing it, then... Yeah. Do the first thing in the morning before everyone assaults you. Yeah. And do you feel like like the uh, like the mantra, like you just repeat like a two-syllable mantra kind of over mm-hmm. and over again, like or mm-hmm. whatever this technique is. I, I've, I've tried endlessly to get people who have done the TM class to like explain it to me. And there's always like a reticence. Um, you know, it's like people don't want to, you're not supposed to tell anybody what your mantra is. And then... Uh, a friend of mine just did it, and she's like, "It's actually like it's simple, but it's actually like complex." And I'm like, "Well, what the fuck does that mean?" You know, like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... um, you know, I think the mantra. You know, I don't know. I, I might be, you know, saying terrible things here, but I, I just think the mantra is a is a reminder. It's just a sound. It's just something to go back to when you're going off track. Uh, so I'm not sure about the sort of uh, superpowers of the mantra. Um, as much as I am sure that it is a good thing to come back to when you start, when you feel yourself starting to have thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, maybe Mm -hmm. I should just make up my own and just go back to that. I've done some of that, I guess, where you, you know, you have just like a nonsense word, two syllables and you just kind of repeat Mm -hmm. that. And then as soon as you catch yourself, like planning your day or like litigating an old argument or something like that, that everybody sort of does in their head without, you know, realizing it a lot of the time, then you just go back to the, the mantra. Yeah. That's it. Right. I I figured it out. There we go. I think you figured (laughs) it out. I think you're a little guru. (laughs) Um, yeah, that, that's cool. And then like the Madonna, like that's something that I'm curious about because, uh, like, uh, uh, and I, I remember like my wife and I actually got married in Italy. Um, and oh, wow. yeah, we just, it was just the two of us and we just wanted to do something travel oriented and, you know, I don't know, that was what we decided to do. And, and logistically and like legally, it was easier to get married in Italy than it was in a lot of countries. Like there wasn't like a huge amount of, uh, like, uh, legal stuff to do. Like some of these countries you had to like live there for six months and stuff like that, that we, you know, obviously couldn't do. So um, but I remember like seeing the Madonna, uh, all over the place and like, what's the direct line? Do you know what I'm saying? I, I understand, like, I understand like finding, um, meaning in the symbol, in, in the symbolism of, um, Mary and all that kind of stuff. But is there more to it? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just curious to know, like how you comprehend it. Um, I'm not sure how I comprehend it, except for the fact that I, I'm so in love with this um, idea of this big mama who's like a mother to everyone um, and just feels like such a nurturing and all-forgiving, beautiful woman who kind of feel taken care of when you're in her presence. So I think, you know, it's probably the sort of suffering child in me that's like, oh, take care of me, mom. Yeah. 
you know, appeal. Um, and, um, you know, she's a strong woman. She, you know, she gave birth to the son of God. You know, that's a really big deal. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so uh, you know, I, I, I love her for that. Yeah, no. And I, it's weird. Cause like, I, I, I say this and I, I express like some degree of, uh, like not understanding, but yet we came back from uh, our wedding trip to Italy and we had bought like one of the pieces of art that we brought back. Like we brought back a couple of like just little paintings, like memento kind of things, you know, and one of them is of the Madonna and she still hangs in our bathroom uh, to this day. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's a good luck charm. You know, like I feel like she's, Absolutely, so, yeah. she's sort of like there. I'm like, I like having her in the house. It just feels like a good thing to have around. Um, and it reminds, obviously reminds us of a good time, but, um, the other thing, like there's another part of me that might be more cynical and um, skeptical, you know, and I've always, I've thought this because I was raised Catholic, you know, where you, you talk about the virgin birth and uh, I'm just like, it seems to me like she was a woman who got pregnant out of wedlock, right? <laughs> Probably. Right? That's exactly what <laughs> and like back then, maybe it was like, you know, who knows what that, I don't even know the the history well enough to know what the what the politics around that would have been back then, but I can't imagine that it was, that it was like, uh, the spirit it, of God. Yeah. Encouraged, you know, <laughs> and, but, um, oh, yeah. I don't know. Like, uh, th I guess that's the way I've, I've sort of like conceptualized her and not, not in a negative light either. Like that's part of my admiration, you know, is that this, this, she strikes me as a woman who in her time, um, was doing things and behaving in ways that sort of cut against the grain. And, yeah. and yet I feel like a lot of times she's sort of held up as um, this sort of embodiment of all that is with the grain, if that makes sense. You know? <laughs> so I think, I guess there's a misconception. I sometimes feel like there's a misconception, but I, I guess we all have our own little conceptions of her. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Um, all right. Well, I really have enjoyed talking with you. Uh, it's fun. To, it's always fun to talk to somebody like halfway around the world. Like it's sort of magical <laughs> that this is possible and that I know. Thanks to Skype. Yeah. It sounds like you're right next door and I'm sorry that I missed you when you were in Los Angeles, but things came up and we weren't here. So, yeah. uh, it would have been fun to meet in person. I hope that, it, you know, we get a chance another time when you move your family out here in a few years. <laughs> exactly. You can look me up and, uh, you know, hopefully like, um, you know, the, uh, hopefully the city and the, and the country and the world will still be intact. I hope so too. I hope so too. And, you know, I, I, I always come to LA because I now love it and, you know, the kids will be moving into the war zone and we'll all be happy there. <laughs> <laughs> well, look me up when you get here. I will for sure. Thank you so much, Brad. All right, there you go, folks. That's Chiara Barzini. Her novel is called Things That Happened Before the Earthquake. It is available now from Doubleday. Go get your copy. Chiara Barzini, Things That Happened Before the Earthquake. You can find her online at chiarabarzini.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle there is at Chiara Barzini. She's on Facebook. Track her down on Facebook. She's on Instagram if you would like to uh, peruse her photos on the Internet. Chiara Barzini. Things that happened before the earthquake. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you would like to write to me, share your thoughts, let me know what you're uh, feeling. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Go get the Other People app. It's free. Best way to listen. If you would like to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So here's a concern of mine. 
like that I that I don't contain enough multitudes as a podcaster and as an artist in general you know an artistic creative person like is there an, like have I maxed out is there only like do I only have like six things that I talk about you can reduce me is what I'm trying to say you can reduce anybody I find this as somebody who listens to podcasts I need to contain multitudes gotta keep reading make my world bigger I think that's why I do these conversations. Try to, like, you know, widen the scope. Just don't want to bore you. I just want to contain multitudes. <laughs>